Hello and welcome back to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and host of this special UCL podcast all about coronavirus. I can't quite believe it, but we're already at episode 10 in our series that's covered everything from mental health to viral spread. This week, as lockdown continues to ease, we're talking about how to stay safe and alert, of course, and thinking what a socially distant post-COVID world might look like. Now, one of the joys of doing this podcast is the extraordinary range of UCL researchers that we can bring together to add their perspective to a particular problem. And this edition is a classic. We've got an engineer, a materials scientist and an award-winning theatre director. So let me introduce them to you. My first guest this week is Nick Tyler, the Chadwick Chair of Civil Engineering, who heads up UCL's Centre for Transport Studies, but he's best known in UCL for his love children, Pamela and now Pearl, the Person Environment Activity Research Laboratory. Nick researches how people interact with their environment and how that environment can influence the decisions we make. And with him, we'll be talking about how to build a new socially distant world. Welcome too to Professor Mark Miodovnik, my good friend and fellow Cheltenham Science Festival enthusiast from UCL's Institute of Making. I'll be talking to him about the practicalities of being in that socially distant environment and answering every question you've ever wanted to know the answer to about face masks. Finally, for all you staying at home, Greg Thompson, who's directed Shakespeare in English in Stratford-on-Avon, in Urdu in Karachi, and in Nepali in Kathmandu, but who has a home in UCL's Department of Anthropology as the strategic lead for performance, creative and applied humanities. He's here to discuss staying connected and the new forms of digital interactions in our lives. So I'm going to start with Nick. Can you set the scene for us by telling us how you think COVID has changed society? Is there such a thing as a post-COVID world? And what does it look like? Wow, some interesting questions there. Thank you very much, Vivian. It's very, very interesting to be here. Um, No, I don't think there is such a thing as a post-COVID world. I think COVID is here to stay. I think the question is how we as a species adapt to it and, and socially how we um, change our behaviours in order to cope with the differences that it implies. And it's, so it's quite interesting to me. I, I, in the 1960s, uh, there was an anthropologist in New York who observed how people did stuff in New York. Um, and he observed the distances that they had between them while they were doing it. So he, and he did loads and loads of films all over the, all over the city. And he came up this idea of creating a science of proxemics, as he called it, um, basically the science of how far apart people were when they were doing stuff. Say that word again, Nick. What's it called? Proxemics. Proxemics. P-R-O-X-E-M-I-C-S. Proxemics. Fantastic. Great Scrabble word too. And yeah, you get lots of points. And, and what he found was, you know, that people having conversations with each other, for example, tended to be about one and a quarter metres apart. And and that seemed to be sort of quite a good thing, and it seems to be pretty consistent and across cultures and all of those sorts of things. And then the people in a more sort of slightly more open, not conversational, but kind of recognizing each other kind of way, they would be about three meters apart. And then people just sort of kind of seeing that there was somebody in the distance that might be, was this a friend or foe kind of decision point was around about eight meters away. And if you had people less than half a meter away, um, only 
particularly favoured people came into that distance because if it were if they weren't particularly favoured people and were in that distance, it would be an act of aggression. And so he could sort of come out with these kind of distances. And those distances have kind of driven urban design ever since, in particular in the last sort of 20 years ago when people like Jan Gale, a Danish architect, very interested in the life between buildings, um, has been promoting these kinds of things in order to create more social spaces. And that has been a very interesting thing. And we've been studying uh, these distances for a number of years. But in the last couple of years, in in using with my friend Pamela, um, we've been looking at this in a bit more detail as to why is it that people converse at one and a quarter meters? And the answer is actually quite interesting. It it it's basically because the voice and the ear work in such a way that in normal conversation, um, one and a quarter meters is kind of where it's comfortable to be. And our hearing can attune to that and our voice works. And also, um, in addition to the acoustical and sound issue related to that, it also happens to be a distance at which the fixation of the eye, as the eye moves around to gain um, vision, what you actually see is, comes because your eye takes little snapshots. Those snapshots work out at one and a quarter meters to be about the size of a face. And... That means that it's very comfortable to see somebody and to be able to see the micro gestures that they're doing. And in actual fact, at that distance, you can see about three people without having to do very much in terms of your own personal movement. So you tend to see groups of up to three or four people in all having conversations. Very rarely see a group of five having a collective conversation because actually you you lose one if you look at the other three. So it, it's a sort of interesting piece there so what happens though when you go on public transport because that's the key thing for all of us is because we can't actually have that two meters or one meter indeed you can't because um, in london underground peak hour we have about four and a half people per square meter um, and that equates to so the, the physical footprint of a person is around about a quarter or a fifth rather of a square meter and that is um, in other words that is about uh, what you get at four and a half people per square meter. Um, so what people do is they contort and change and use devices to remove that intimate connection. So uh, they will read a book, they'll have their phone by their face, they will contort their bodies in such ways that they don't actually face people at that distance. And that makes it extremely uncomfortable and very unpleasant. So you're quite correct about that. Now, um, but then, and also, that is not a particularly social space. So, when COVID came along, so the world that we were in up till up till a few months ago was this was kind of how we saw people working. When COVID came, um, that all got blown out of the water because suddenly we were required to be two meters apart, and that doesn't fit with any of those distances. Certainly not the one for conversation. And so, what what happened? Well. What happened was that the the sort of the genetic desire for sociality, the the thing that made the species survive and be able to collaborate to find food ten thousand years ago, comes into play, and people start to do other kinds of social acts. So we have Italian people singing across balconies, we have Spanish people dancing on roofs, we had even in the dear old UK people clapping for the NHS, whether or not they were clapping 
for the NHS. What they were actually doing was engaging in a, in a communal social activity because we need, we crave that sociality. So for me, I really dislike the term so, social distancing because it, that is not what we're doing. We are physically distancing and we are retaining the sociality of society. Now, the question for going forward in the COVID world is how do we maintain that sociality if the physical distance has to be different? Because what Edward Hall found was the physical distance, and that turned out to be the same as the social distance. What we're now saying is that maybe the physical distance is going to be different. And if the physical distance is going to be different, how do we actually make the sociality work? And that is something which we are now starting to look at. Um, and unfortunately, the, the day before the lockdown, um, I had a piece of kit delivered to Pamela, um, a really cool piece of kit called FNIRS. FNIRS stands for um, Functional Near Infrared Spectroscopy. And what it enables me to do is to scan the brain, a bit like a, a magnetic resonance in imaging machine, because scan the brain using light so you can do things and have your brain scanned at the same time. And one of the things we want to do with this kit is actually have people having conversations at different distances apart and doing different activities and all those sorts of things so that we can understand much, much more what's the neurology of sociality. And that is, I think, the really exciting thing that COVID is throwing up for us in that particular space. So can we uh, briefly uh, design a world which is preserves our sociality but also make sure that we're sufficiently distant. I mean, I know for me, it feels really weird being at two metres from people. I think we need to figure out what it is that we need to have so that two metres, either, either two metres is not necessary, that's one issue, we don't need to be two metres apart, or we have a situation where we have to accustom ourselves to two metres. So what is it about that space that we can do that would enable us to be able to do that? It may mean we have to change the way we speak. Um, may mean that we... What tends to happen if you have people talking at two metres distance is the sentences become shorter, um, is much more simplistic, uh, is more declamatory, um, not particularly conversational. And so maybe that becomes the way that English is spoken in the future, in a few generations or so. But are there actually other things that we can do? Maybe we need to look at the acoustics to make it easier to speak at a, at a more conversational level at a greater distance and still be heard. That may be something to do with thinking much harder about what is the ambient um, acoustic situation, what is the um, perspective for uh, lighting, because vision is a large part of hearing. And if we can actually get the lighting right, maybe we can actually buy a bit of help on the hearing side, which is something we've been doing with hearing impaired people for some time. Um, so I think there are things that we can actually do. And I think the design issues may not be so complex. That's fascinating. Let's move on now to uh, something that's beyond the environment and social distancing, but speaks to the point where we actually have to be physically closer to other people, for instance, in a, a, a tube train or in a confines of a, of a shop or even a queue for a Primark. Uh, that's happening more and more. People have now have got to, of course, to where it's mandatory for people to wear masks on public transport. And that's when we need physical barriers. And Mark, what can 
businesses do, first of all, to physically protect their staff and customers? And what role do materials play in this? I mean, for instance, we've seen a lot of acrylic screens being going up. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm not sure really quite how effective those things are going to be. They, they, they feel a bit more psychological than, than, than kind of warranted because inside, a, inside an inside space like a shop, You've got airflow, and and the the risk is that someone who's asymptomatic. So if we just if we if we assume that people who who know they've got COVID nineteen are not going out into the shops, and um, the only people who might infect you are people who are asymptomatic, and that seems to be one of the big problems of this virus, which is that that asymptomatic phase is 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 quite long uh, for many people. So it might be up to four days. Then. Um, how could they infect other people? It turns out that, it, that it, at first it was thought to be only by touch, and so there was a big emphasis on hand washing, and that is also still important. But also now it's there's a growing body of evidence that it may be transmitted uh, through aerosols, so tiny droplets that come out of your mouth when you cough, but also just when you breathe. And if you are infected with the virus, the virus is inside those little droplets and they are floating in the air. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, okay, so someone might speak and to you at a till or across a, a distance and, and these little droplets might come out of their mouth and they might then enter you. And also, will how long will they remain airborne for? And, and the answer is, you know, it could be a long time because the smaller they are, the more they're sort of, going to be in the air being buoyed up by convection currents. So inside a train carriage in a shop, you know, physical barriers like acrylic, I, I, I'm not sure how important those really are, except for psychologically. <laughs> what you really want is something that's going to be deposited before you breathe it. And, and that's when you are talking about a mask. But to be, to be really sure that you're not, I mean, if, if I was in a shop, and I wanted to be really sure that no one asymptomatic was going to be breathing into that air and, and I was going to breathe the air in, you, you need something like a, a, an N95 mask, so-called. So, -called, so which, what's an N95? Just remind us. So it stops um, particles uh, or very, very fine particles, 95% of them, um, of entering your respiratory system. Uh, and... Um, so, uh, you know, the chance of something getting into your system is, is reduced very, very, very drastically. But those are very much, though, the, the, the masks that people in healthcare might be wearing. And the concern is, isn't it, that actually probably cloth masks are OK for, for most of us and do a good enough uh, job. And we should leave those masks for people who really need them. Well, so, that, that, so now we're into, into risk versus benefit for the whole society, I think. Because uh, there are supply issues for these masks, and that's why it's been recommended that the public don't wear them, um, because then the supply will be used up. If you wear a cloth mask, what, what it's really doing is protecting others rather than protecting you, because the cloth masks are not going to be at that sort of standard. Uh, and, and essentially, if you're asymptomatic and you're breathing out and you're wearing a cloth mask, and the reason you're wearing a cloth mask isn't because you think you've got it, because you're asymptomatic, so you don't even know you've got it. The reason you're wearing a cloth mask is because everyone's wearing a cloth mask because we all don't know whether we've got it or not. And that's that's the major issue here is that if you get everyone to wear them, then as you breathe out, that cloth mask will stop a lot of these droplets anyway and keep them into your person. 
So the, so it's not about you breathing in other people's stuff. It's just getting less of it out into the air. So, so it's, it's a subtle point here, which is that if you want to protect yourself, you want, you want a high, you want a very high certified mask. If you're trying to protect the population and the people in the carriage or in the shop, you want a, you want a cloth mask because it, it is a very easily, uh, easy for a population to, to, to obtain these masks or to make these masks. And it will protect a lot of people. But only if everyone point, wears them. Yeah. Yes. And another point is that a cloth mask is made, you know, the name is on the tin, uh, cloth, and it's not made of plastic. And what we're seeing at the moment is an extraordinary proliferation of single-use disposable items. You know, at a time when we thought we'd got plastic on the run, now it's coming back to haunt us big time in the guise of masks. We've done some work on this. And... If mandating the whole population to wear masks for the next year was a public policy and everyone wore disposable single-use masks, which are made of plastic, then, um, then there would be 66,000 tonnes of plastic waste, contaminated plastic waste, going into the waste stream, of which there is no way to really properly handle it, plus the fact that it's, it's plastic waste. So um, that's a really bad idea. So, so it seems really important that when, if the government and if, if our, our immediate future for the next few years before, or however long it is, before we get a vaccine, everyone is going to be wearing masks, then what we need is everyone to be wearing reusable masks to reduce the plastic waste. And it will have a huge impact because that's just the UK we've done our, our calculations for. But if you think billions of people worldwide wearing single-use plastic masks and throwing them away... And we already seen them washing up in the, in the seas. It's it's going to be an environmental catastrophe. Uh, I think that we ought to have an advert for here for how to make your own mask. Where can you find somewhere to uh, somewhere that will tell you how to make a mask? Could it be on the Institute of Making website? Mark? So what we did is we thought, well, look, there are lots of recipes out there for making masks, and we instead of making our own recipe, what we realised was actually a lot of these different ways of doing it suited different people depending on their level of confidence of making their own mask and what facilities they have at home or in other places, what kind of community they're part of. So maybe they're part of a community who can make masks for them, or maybe you want to make masks for other people. So we did a big survey of all the mask designs out there and 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 we've got an FAQ on our website which is takes you through the steps you should take in assessing what kind of mask you might want for yourself and for your nearest and dearest and your local people who you might be looking after. And, and if you look at our website, the Institute of Making, it's called the Face Covering FAQ. And we go through things like, well, what happens if you wear glasses? Which is the best mask for that? Because fogging is a big issue. Or what if you're deaf and you wear a hearing aid? Uh, round the ears becomes an issue. Um, and so we, we try to go through all the different aspects of making a mask uh, simple ones, complicated ones, fun ones, <laughs> serious ones, uh, but also ones that you know are you know take into account that humans are humans and we're all different shapes and sizes. I have to say that I made one out of a sock because there was a, a, a thing on the uh, on the internet about how to just make a mask by cutting down a sock. Uh, I just looked rather sinister. <laughs> it was, and it kept on popping off which really wasn't the point of it but uh, talking about being a bit more serious about uh, masks it's all very well and good when it's on your face uh, and it, and of course if you're coughing it stops all those particles getting to other people but 
there is a real problem about taking it off, isn't there? And you need to be careful how you do that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's really not very straightforward how to make, get into good habits, I suppose. That's the point. If we're going to be wearing masks uh, for the end of the, until the end of the year, we all need to get into good habits about them. So imagine you're asymptomatic and you're, you don't know you're, you're depositing the virus on your own mask, but you're protecting other people by wearing it, so that's great. But now you've got virus on your mask, so what you don't want is when you come back in or come out of the public transport, if you then just take that off and scrunch it up and put it in your pocket, now you've got virus on your hands and then whatever you touch, you're spreading that around the place. <laughs> so what you've got to do is take off your mask at that point, put it into some sort of bag, put that in your pockets so you can wash it later. Then you've got to clean your hands. <laughs> And this is very, very important. Otherwise, a lot of the use, a lot of the value of wearing masks is going to is is going to disappear. And this this, this goes for everyone. We've just got to get really good habits of washing our hands very regularly when we put take masks off, and then washing that mask as well. I mean, the beauty of the reusable mask is a, it's sort of um, as I was saying before, it, it it produces less waste, but also, I mean, econo- from an economic perspective, there's lots of people. You know who who this is. You know it's not going to be easy thing to suddenly get two or three masks you can use over the next few months, and so washing it in, in your washing machine is up is what we recommend for two reasons. One, it's the cheapest way to do it, but two is that it uses the least energy. And you might think, oh gosh, now you're really going too far. But when you when you look at environmental impacts for millions of people wearing masks, it turns out the amount of energy used to wash them is actually a significant factor. <laughs> And if if people hand wash these in hot water, and if millions of people do that, the amount of energy used creates a huge amount of pollution. So, so there you are. So there you are, folks. You, you you now know that you need to wash it. But can I just give you a tip, uh, Mark, which is if you wash it at 60 degrees because you're washing other stuff, please choose a mask that doesn't colour run when you put it on 60 degrees. Because uh, I have some rather odd-looking pink towels now that were white, thanks to the masks that I put in there to wash at the same time. <laughs> but thanks very much for that. And that Institute of Making website is terrific. Just let me remind you, you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. And we'd also like you to fill up a survey if you'd be so kind. Now let me go to our third guest. Now, some people are going back to work, but a lot of people who can work from home or can't get to work safely are still needing to self-isolate because of their susceptibility to the virus. And effectively, they're still in full lockdown. So, Greg, what are the challenges of staying at home and remaining connected, especially in this new partial lockdown period? Um, Well, I think lots of people are facing lots of different challenges. I mean, in terms of people's work life, because we're sitting at desks interacting with screens for the most part, rather than being in rooms with other people, uh, uh, movements are restricted. So we're often having a kind of um, our necks are in the same relationship, um, depending on who we're talking to. So, you know, everyone's on the same screen. Um, we're not doing those kind of um, the the kind of stretching, moving, twisting our bodies, turning to face other people 
even just moving from room to room, our whole kind of sense of our physical existence has been uh, diminished by the reality of the lockdown. I mean, it's great if you're one of those people who's been um, taking the opportunity to exercise more and exercise every day. But for a lot of people, they've just kind of um, reduced the range of their movement. And I, I wanted to talk to you today about a man called Ed Woodall, who I knew as, as an actor, and he's turned himself into a Feldenkrais practitioner. And he comes into UCL every so often on my um, collaborative enterprise modules and looks at how people organise themselves in space. And we do things like we go into the Bloomsbury Theatre at UCL and walk across the space, how, look at what, what happens when you get too close to people, what happens when you are far apart in a space, or all those different things to do with bodies in space and their relationships. So he's now, and he's now transformed himself, as I said, into a Feldenkrais practitioner, which is a, a, a system for helping people to move their bodies more efficiently. Feldenkrais was an Israeli engineer, and he got very interested in the mechanics of the body. Um, and he developed this system for training your own body, for learning how your own body works. And it, it uses very small, very easy shifts in terms of how you use your limbs, how you use your body in relation to itself. Usually when you teach that, um, you might put your hand on someone's shoulder. You might manipulate their arm. Um, you'll certainly look at how they're using their body. And of course, in the lockdown, the suddenly the question is, you know, how do you do this kind of stuff without being able to touch someone? And Ed was kind of stuck at the beginning of lockdown. You know, I've suddenly got no clients. What do I do? Um, and his initial impulse, like a lot of creative people, a lot of artists, is that they must do something. They must be active. Of course, it's not just actors who feel the need to do something. So lots of people have had this impulse that they should do something every day and share it on social media. Um, Ed also wanted to be altruistic in some way to you know to just offer something and also the the kind of doing something that would enable his own sense of discipline to um, kick in so he started a facebook group invited people that he knew to, to join and every morning at nine o'clock he did a feldenkrais lesson for half an hour for whoever was there and of course um he immediately realized he was uh, communicating communicating with people that he'd never touched, and uh, in in some cases he'd never met. And he said, "What kicked in was his sense of being a performer. That, of course, you know, in the theatre, you're often broadcasting, communicating to people you've never met." And he said, "So this was a real shift in his practice. Instead of thinking about this particular individual who's who's in front of him and having a relationship." With a, as in with a one-on-one, -on -one, with a normal Feldenkrais session, he's then thinking, how do I reach lots of people that I can't see? So um, has he become the Joe Wicks of, uh, of refined movement? Uh, um, interestingly, Joe Wicks is about to stop doing his daily class. Oh, is he? <laughs> so perhaps some of his 64 million viewers might join Ed's 160, perhaps, <laughs> and, and so, swallow those numbers. So, Greg, tell me, 
you know, we've we've seen that COVID has accelerated change in an extraordinary way. We've done in three weeks what perhaps we would have taken three to five years uh, to achieve. So how much of this is going to go back and how much of it is going to stay in the digital spaces that we've now created? I, I would say none of it is going to go back. I mean, it's all an accelerated process of what we were doing anyway. It's just that we're all suddenly saying, okay, now I know what Zoom is or Microsoft Teams or whatever these platforms are. I mean, you know, over the la over five years, we'd have all come to absorb them. It's just we've done it in, you know, five weeks. I think what is interesting is that people are communicating in simpler ways. We've accepted that there's a loss of nuance, a loss of complexity. Um, and so we're often speaking in simpler sentences. We're speaking for less time. Meetings seem to be shorter. I mean, one thing I've noticed in the development of the Creative Humanities um, degree, this new degree at UCL, is that it's very hard to initiate new things over Zoom. We're very good at going over things that we've already had a conversation about that we know about. But in terms of creating new thought, that seems to um, be reduced so we need to find a way of how do we get our creativity back in this format where we're not getting the same kind of social signals, we're not having the same haphazard conversations, you know, the, the kind of uh, meeting in the corridor outside, the, the bumping into somebody as you get a bottle of water, say, or, you know, those kind of haphazard things are something that we need to recreate, I think, in some way. That's really interesting, Greg. And actually, I wanted to ask, because you happen to be three of the most creative people uh, that we've uh, had on the programme. So I, I wanted to ask actually Nick and uh, uh, Mark how we get that creativity back, because I'm certainly missing those real interactions. I mean, it's all very well having a Zoom cocktail, but it's not the same thing as sitting next to somebody in a noisy bar. So... Mark, how about you? How do you get that creativity back? Yeah, I, I, I wish I knew. And I'm really interested to hear Gregory's kind of um, analysis of, the, of, you know, how much the physicality really matters for, for those creative moments. I, I, it certainly it feels, you know, rings true to me that I haven't had any good new ideas. And I feel like most of the meetings I, I am involved with, it's essentially kind of, we're sort of troubleshooting the status quo. We're not we're not we're not coming up with good stuff, um, so yeah. How does that how does that work? Um, Any ideas, Nick? I think it's um, I, both you and Greg have you mentioned in passing that I think what the secret is, and I think it's about happenstance. And I think the the thing about creativity is that it's 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 our innate ability to to make an advantage out of something that we didn't expect to happen, and then turn that into something that becomes formative in the future. So that might be a, a strange sound or an odd rhythm or just the chance meeting of somebody, even maybe just seeing somebody you don't know, having a, a brief interaction as you go past them. These kind of things are what then spark the process that we have um, in our mind of actually then creating something new and, and how we then represent that might be in music or poetry or art or uh, science or whatever. But I think it's that that sense of how we deal with the surprise. So the great thing is uh, when you look at 
uh, what we might regard as as sort of great art. So I, you know, if I were thinking of something, you know, Shakespeare or Mozart or Beethoven or something like that, the great thing about them is what they what they do is they create um, a false sense of security and that everything is all quite normal and they lob in something different. So they change they change the meter of a line of poetry. Um, you're expecting it to have um, um, five uh, iambic pentameters, but actually it turns out to have four. And what that does is then sparks the thought in your mind about something else. And that's, of course, why this was done. And I think that sense of being able to uh, incorporate surprise and um, and chance and um, opportunity is actually really crucial to creativity. And so the question for me is, how do we create that in in the world? And I think that's about enabling, seeing the world as a bit of a canvas that people can bring their own paint to. And how do we create that environment in what can happen? This, to me, is a fantastic challenge. We're nearly to the end of our time. And I wanted, before you all uh, go, to ask each of you, if you had a magic wand and you could make a change to the world, to the society and to individuals right now, in respect of what's happened over COVID, what would it be? I mean, what would specifically would you change to help people stay safe right now, knowing what each of you know? Let's uh, start with you, Greg. Um, can I can I say two things? Um, the first thing is I, I think we need to be bailing out people, not organisations or buildings. Um, and the second thing is we need lots of credible information out there on what this disease is and how it spreads so that people can self-organise, so that people can do the, they will do the recommended thing if they understand it, I believe. Okay. Uh, how about you, Mark? I, I, I would have um, been much clearer right from the beginning in, in, in making the importance of masks clear to everybody and, and saying, look, I know we live in a very open democracy and, and in Britain it's, a, it's very individualistic and that's one of the delights of, of being part of Brit Britain. But in this case, we need to do something that protects everybody and it only works if everyone does it. And I would have spent much more time teeing people up to the fact that they're going to have to all wear masks and that in doing so, that is a good thing for everyone. It's more communal. And I think just trying to get Britain, I'm really struck by the fact that sort of the more communal societies in Europe in particular uh, are, have got a, got a lid on this virus much better than the more individualistic ones. Yes, that is really striking. Uh, Nick, how about, uh, how about you? And actually, you've already waved your magic wand, I think, on transport, because wasn't it through you that... Uh, drivers have become less exposed to virus by people boarding in the middle. Well, actually, we we've got them back boarding at the front now. Um, we've done a lot of work on how to protect the drivers from um, from infection from passengers, and and that is all being implemented now. But what would I, if I wanted to wave another magic wand? I think I think it's sort of picking up something Mark uh, and and Greg said. I think there's a sense of communality that is really important and. The thing that struck me with the COVID thing is that what's made commonality difficult is a lack of honesty in in saying what things are and what is needed. And, and I think that has turned into people feeling very uncertain and fearful of other people. 
and and therefore i think if we if if i could wave a magic wand i would say let's all be a bit more honest about what we do and don't know what the implications are um what what's the reality here so that people do not have that sense of fear um of, of the unknown and actually then can become much more communal in the sense of how we actually can exercise that sociality which we all desire very wise words from all of you. Well, we've got to the end of our time, I'm afraid. It's been a fascinating discussion today. And you've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. The episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the lovely Keris Bradley. Our guests today, to whom very many thanks, were Professor Nick Tyler, Professor Mark Miodovnik, and Greg Thompson. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And please, it would be really helpful if you could fill out that survey for us. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. It's been a pleasure being with you. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.